Hi everyone, I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor at Wired, and you're listening to The Gadget Lab, the podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I'm joined by co-hosts Ariel Pardes, Senior Associate Editor at Wired, Hello. and Lauren Good, Senior Writer at Wired. I like apps. <laughs> uh, and the reason that I was talking in that voice is um, because Ariel, you later in the show we're going to hear from you. Uh, you wrote a story about ASMR apps and services. Is that right? That's right. I have spent <laughs> a lot of time over the past forty-eight hours watching ASMR videos online, and not just videos from creators. Videos, in some cases, from brands, <laughs> which has been really weird. Um, we'll get into that later in the show, and also later on, we'll talk to Emily Dreyfus, our special guest this week. Emily, say hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, Emily has written a great story about the kerfuffle between Genius and Google, and we're going to hear all about what that drama means for the larger tech ecosystem. And later on, I'll just be talking about Keanu Reeves again. Because let's go for three weeks in a row. Let's make it a streak. The kids are into streaks these days. Uh, well, okay. What's the latest in Keanu news, Lauren? Uh, the latest in Keanu news is, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't see anything new on the internet this oh, week. Oh, I Did saw something. Guys? Okay, what was it? Um, um, he, uh, he was asked if he knew that he was the internet's new boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And oh. he had no idea. He had oh. no idea that he is suddenly so popular online. That really like solidifies his status as the internet's boyfriend because the internet's boyfriend doesn't know. Right. right. He just is. Right. He's, right. A, he's obliviously beautiful. Yeah. Right. The internet's yeah. boyfriend doesn't want to be the internet's boyfriend, which makes him even more so. Right. He's not that into you. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, what else happened this week? Okay, let's get into the real news. Today, the day that we're taping this, which is Thursday, Apple issued a recall for the batteries in certain models of MacBook Pros. The batteries, according to Apple's own support page, may quote unquote overheat and pose a fire safety risk. But it does appear to be potentially a limited number of MacBook Pros that this is affecting. It's only affecting 15-inch MacBook Pros with Retina displays sold between September of 2015 and February of 2017. Now, that may be still a pretty large number of laptops when you consider that Apple sells many millions of laptops per year. Um, and MacBook Pro is something that appeals to a lot of people. And these are this is a two-year span during which these laptops were sold. Um, but it is only the 15-inch models. It's the ones with retina displays. Um, the company also says that it's voluntarily decided to replace the affected batteries, which can be done at the Apple Store or an authorized Apple service provider. And you can also mail in your computer if you'd rather not deal with the Apple Store, which I totally understand. So this is not just a singular event, though. When you look at the number of incidents that Apple has had around the MacBook, the MacBook line, you know, which includes MacBook, MacBook Air, and MacBook Pro over the past couple of years, it's pretty substantial. Well, Lauren, I was just going to say, I have this model MacBook Pro, and I already have an appointment to have them replace a part of the computer already because of the, it's part, it has the bad keyboard. Mm. Oh no. And it, it like the M doesn't work, the B doesn't work, and the I doesn't work. And so they were like, oh cool, we'll we'll just replace the whole thing. And so now I'm realizing I might as well just have them replace the battery too. Yeah, it's going to take at least one to two weeks to replace the battery, potentially. So you might as well get it all done. But also who needs an M key? Who needs an I? I mean, you just work for <laughs> Word or 
W R E D. Really, you don't need the other keys. <laughs> I can't even type my own name. Is the thing. You can <laughs> right. type a version of your name, Ellie. Ellie. Molly. <laughs> right. It seems fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Totally fine. Uh, in other news this week, the internet exploded in lols as a video posted by the folks at GE made the rounds. The video is an instructional video. It's sort of like a visual user's guide, and it shows the steps that you need to go through in order to reset one of GE's smart light bulbs and restore its factory settings. The video is pretty absurd. It shows somebody going through the elaborate process of turning the light bulb off, waiting two seconds, turning it back on, waiting eight seconds, turning it off, <laughs> waiting two seconds, turning it on, waiting two seconds, turning it off, waiting eight seconds, turning it back on. It just goes on and on, and it just gets funnier and funnier as it goes. The video has actually been around since January. Uh, GE has its home lighting sub-brand. It's called C by GE, uh, and they launched some new uh, smart home lighting products at CES, which takes place at the beginning of January. This video was published to support that particular product release, but like all great things on the internet, it eventually found its way to Reddit and Twitter six months later, where it was roundly mocked as evidence that the smart home is unnecessarily complex and dumb. And I had very conflicted feelings about this video because I thought it was very funny, but also I thought like, that's kind of cool. You know, you have a light bulb and you need to reset the firmware. So how do you reset the firmware on a light bulb? You just use the light switch, right? You turn it off, turn it back on, turn it off, turn it back on. And it's unnecessarily complex because they want to make it so that you can't do it by accident. Mm-hmm. You know, that like all of a sudden, like my light bulbs won't connect anymore. So also you think about why would somebody want to reset the firmware in their light bulb? You know, there's all kinds of reasons. Like if you want to give your, Lauren, what were you saying? You want to give your light bulb to somebody else? Well, I had a loaner kit from oh, Philips yeah. Hue a long time ago. And I think I eventually returned it because we return our loader products. But the thing with Philips Hue is that you can take photos from your camera roll and then put them into the app and then assign a light setting based on a photo oh that you God. like. So let's say you had a Hawaiian sunset photo, and then you wanted to color match the hues from that photo to your light bulbs that changed multiple colors. Then you could just tap something in your app that would say Hawaiian sunset down the road, and then the lights would change colors. So my <laughs> joke today, which is not a very funny joke at all, is like, oh no, I'm shipping the smart light bulbs back without resetting my Hawaiian sunset settings. Like Everyone's going to know my really weird lighting settings. But I suppose in the world of the Internet of Things and the connected home, there are all kinds of little vulnerabilities that you're actually exposing yourself to once you connect all of these yeah. products to the Internet in some way, shape, or form. So it's probably a good idea to reset them. Yeah. Um, and it's nice, that they make it, it's nice that they make it easy to do. Yeah, <laughs> totally easy. Just <laughs> wait seven seconds, wait two more seconds, then wait seven more seconds. I mean, I woke up this morning to this story because our colleagues on the East Coast were chatting about it in Slack. And I'm getting on the train, and I see that people are talking about this. And, and I was like, I mean, is this serious? Do we want, you know, so I reached out to GE. <laughs> Life of an internet reporter in the year of our Lord 2019. Reached out to GE to say, essentially, is this for real? Like, were you guys doing this as a parody? I just wanted to make sure that this was done in reality and not in a tongue-in-cheek sort of way. And GE responded 
We know technology can be complicated and are aware that our current factory reset process is not ideal. We're finding simpler <laughs> methods for our users and appreciate the patience. So this was done in full earnestness. This was I mean, not at least a parody you don't have video. to like unscrew the light bulb and do like touch something inside it or anything. It yeah. And there was talk, you know, on the Internet about like, well, why don't they just put a reset button on there? But you put a button on a light bulb and people are going to probably assume that that is a switch to turn it on and off and right. start pressing right. it. Right. And then that might become a problem because then they're calling customer support saying like every time I turn the light bulb on it disconnects from my Wi-Fi and I have to set it up again. Right. <laughs> I don't know. It, it also it like it does uh, excuse the pun sh uh, shed light on uh, the current state of the smart home Bravo. and the Internet of Things. I mean, it's all very clumsy and it's all very weird, which is why, you know, we're looking at things like voice control and we're looking at things like ambient computing to solve some of those problems for us. Mm. Well, if you're looking for other lulls on the internet this week, may I recommend uh, some of the ASMR commercials from brands such as IKEA and Bear Paint? Uh, <laughs> yes, that's right, folks. The great commercialization of ASMR has arrived. If you're not familiar with ASMR, um, these are the videos that have become very popular on YouTube that invoke like whispering like soft touching or like hair brushing is another trope. Or like repeated patterns, right? Yeah. Like the soap, cutting of the soap. Cutting blocks. soap. Slime is oh. like in the same category. Um, it, it produces in some people this response that people have described as like spine tingling or like brain tingling. Um, and it's become a real phenomenon on the internet. And like all things that become a phenomenon on the internet, marketers are eager to capitalize on it. And so now there's this great trend of people trying to make apps and services and products and even commercials that take ASMR and turn it into a marketing play. And so I've spent a lot of time this week uh, sort of investigating this trend. There are some real weird apps out there that are sort <laughs> of like headspace, but with ASMR. Um, and then, of course, all of these brands that are literally co-opting the techniques to try and sell things like paint. Like the, the bare paint commercial, I actually think is good ASMR in the sense <laughs> that like if you're into soft, tingly noises, like the thwack of a soft paintbrush on a wall. It's soothing. It is soothing. Well, so this also gets back to like kind of the history of ASMR, right? Because wasn't it? Um, I'm gonna forget his name right now, but um, the like painting instructional guy from Peter Bob Ross. Ross. Okay, yes, Bob Ross. Yeah. He's like the OG <laughs> ASMR video because when, uh, my understanding, at least, is like when people began to realize that they would have this response to people, a lot of it was through watching old Bob Ross videos on YouTube, and he has that kind of. You whisper already he's like a lovely little tree right here but then also he's silent for a lot of it and he'd have the sound of just like the dry brush on the paint like shh or whatever all those little sounds um so it's like it's a throwback bear totally. bear is genius mm -hmm. yeah. i always thought that bob ross was the start of stoner culture <laughs> i mean like, there's the definitely an intersection with asthma and stoner right? culture okay. would you like to have your brain tingle do i have a Oh, well, that's actually a really good question. Do any of the, like, weed delivery services have an asthma marketing ploy yet? Now that is an excellent Brilliant. idea. Brilliant. Cannabismer. Cannabismer. 
Um, so Ariel, tell us real quick, what are some of the new apps that you uh, that you looked at in the story this week? So there's a new app out um, this week called Mindwell, which is a meditation app, but they have a section of the app that's exclusively ASMR content. So um, it's like a woman with a British accent speaking <laughs> very gently and saying things like, put your mind at ease, but with a British accent. Um, that's nice. Um, there are some other apps like that that are um, subscription-based and are similarly meditation or mindfulness-oriented, but using the techniques of ASMR to relax people or focus their minds inward. Um, and then there's also a pair of sleeping headphones that are being marketed as like the first dedicated ASMR headphones. Um, that's a Kickstarter project. Um, but that was just introduced earlier this month. It's from a startup called Acoustic Sheep, and um, their their co-founders told me very explicitly that they made these because they saw that ASMR was a big trend, and they thought maybe people would like some headphones. <laughs> Do you think that a subscription service for ASMR sounds is worth it? It depends if you're really into it. I mean, I don't personally feel much when I watch these videos or hear these sounds like it feels relaxing to me but I don't feel brain tingly personally so for me that would be a hard no um, also I think there is a great alternative which is finding somebody whose videos you really like or finding like an ASM artist who you want to support personally and then supporting that person through like a patreon page or by returning to their YouTube videos every single time I'm um, so glad that's what you said because I really thought you were going to say finding someone who can do a good ASMR voice <laughs> in your ear in person in real life that's and like marrying that person and then just having that person whisper to you in bed all the time. I mean, I also <laughs> highly encourage that, but it's just like a little bit more difficult. Like it, if that's really like like what option A, then maybe like option B, which is just paying ten dollars a month, is like right. Better option. Actually, it yes. sounds like rather unsexy. It's like, yeah. What do you want to do for dinner tonight? <laughs> yes. I don't know. Did take out last night. Yeah. I don't feel like cooking though. Did you, did you sign the kids' permission slip? Exactly. Did you feed the cat yet? Did you scoop the cat litter. <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, you might want to pay for it uh, at that point. There's a market. There's yeah. where there's where there's an audience. There's a market. Uh, yes, and I think uh, people listening to this podcast are going to uh, quickly run from our podcast <laughs> for $10 a month or more. You know what? Keep you, doing these voices. If you like hearing about ASM artists and you like hearing Ariel talk about it and you like hearing Mike speak in whispers, just leave it in the comments. We want to know. Go to iTunes. Let us know if the Gadget Lab should be a regular ASMR part. Par, an ASMR podcast. <laughs> we're into it. Uh, well, look, let's take a quick break. And yes. then when we come back, Emily, we're going to grill you about the genius saga. Okay. If you've ever opted to read lyrics and other annotations while listening to music streaming apps like Spotify, you are probably familiar with Genius. Formerly known as Rap Genius, the music annotation service was in the news this week because it accused Google of stealing its song transcripts and publishing them on Google search pages as though they were native search results. Google denied doing this, but there was one big problem with Google's denial. Genius had set a kind of digital booby trap on its site in order to track people who stole its content. And this watermark pointed to somebody scraping the content, if not Google. We're talking to senior writer Emily Dreyfus today about this story and what it means for copyright protection and proprietary content in the digital age. Emily spoke with Genius this week for a story on Wired.com. 
Again, thank you for joining us, Emily Dreyfus. Thanks for having me, you guys. Yeah, so this story was um, really interesting, and it's as I went down the rabbit hole of like how clever and cool the watermark was and what it means, uh, my takeaway was that actually this isn't a story about copyright at all, hmm. and it's a story about antitrust. Why is that? Back up a little bit. Tell us what happened and take us through the steps of last, I guess it was last Sunday this all came out, right? And maybe like just to to sort of get the players right, like Genius is this website that collates lyrics to songs, right? Yes. And other things. I mean, you can use Genius annotation to do lots of, you can annotate any kind of text, but the like community of Genius is all around lyrics and specifically mm-hmm. um you know really hard to decipher hard to understand lyrics so then like super fans will come together and and so it's actually important to understand that genius doesn't have staffers who are creating these lyric transcripts it's genius community members so in that way it's a little bit like wikipedia mm-hmm. um it's like dedicated fans who are like oh the new song by uh, one of the songs in question is by this uh, rapper named designer and the song is called Panda. And I guess when this song came out in 2016, I'm not like personally familiar with the song, although I listened to it for the story. Um, uh, the lyrics are impossible to decipher. Right. I will just tell you that. I, I know the song extremely well and could not tell you a single lyric. Right, so this song was really, really hard for the genius community to transcribe because like no one could understand it. So actually back then, in 2016, Genius had designer on to one of their, they did like a pop-up video show, which they've since um, like syndicated and now they do this show. It's like, it's like a big part of their business. But this was one of their first ones. They had him on and he walked the, them through exactly what the lyrics were. And then like all these super fans went through and they like annotated and compiled it or whatever. And so they, Genius became the only people who had the definitive mm-hmm. lyrics to that song because nowhere else on the internet did it exist. And then they began to notice that the, that those perfect lyrics that had come f- straight from the mouth of the artist were appearing all over the web on all these other places, including Google. And not just on Google, but in Google, you guys are familiar with this, um, these knowledge panels mm-hmm. that Google has been pushing where it's like you ask a question and Google doesn't send you to some other website to get the answer. Google presents you with the answer right there on its page. So you don't have to go somewhere else on the web. Right. Therefore, possibly denying other sites on the internet the traffic they would normally get. Bingo. And that's exactly what makes this not really about copyright, although it is, um, but the, it's just that Genius doesn't actually have a copyright case. Um, what it's really about is if in doing this they are uh, preventing Genius from getting those clicks and they're like competing with Genius and then undermining their entire business model, then it's an antitrust, anti-competitive issue. So when Genius first started noticing this, did they go to Google immediately? Mm-hmm. Pretty t- pretty immediately. Um, they said to Google, like, excuse us, <laughs> we think this is <laughs> happening. <laughs> um, I mean, I wasn't exactly there. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they, you know, they alerted Google. I think it was like some months later. They watched for a while. Um, they, they sent Google a letter in 2017. And Google didn't, they say that Google didn't take it very seriously. And that was when they then began on an occasional basis to do this watermarking thing, which was after their community would compile a list, uh, like a transcript of these lyrics, they would then go through and before sending it out on their official database, because they do have licensing agreements with like the likes of Spotify and Apple Music to provide genius lyric transcripts to those um, 
apps and companies. So like when you're when you're listening to a song on Spotify and you tap on the little thing that says like see the lyrics and then the lyrics sort of come in animated like little cards. Right. That's genius data. Exactly. Yes. And that's like they're allowed to do that. And so before they would send out that like official genius database data, they would embed this secret watermark, which was apostrophes that went from straight to curly in a pattern that was like a Morse code pattern that mm-hmm. spelled out the phrase red handed. That <laughs> is, dare I say, genius. Yes. <laughs> and actually, when I talked to a lawyer during the reporting of this story, I was like, wasn't that genius? Like, how did they come up with this? And he was like, yeah, that was really clever how they did that. But actually, there's a long history of companies who think that their competitor is stealing from them, putting like phony data into mm-hmm. their um, product in order to track it. Um, and he told me about like in 1991, there was this case where one phone book company sued another phone book company because they were like, you are straight up stealing our telephone number listings. So they embedded phony phone numbers and phony people. And then the other phone book printed it. But this gets us to the point of the story, which is that that phone book company, when it sued the other one and had like irrefutable proof that those listings had been stolen, they lost that case in the Supreme Court. They did not win their copyright case because the truth was they didn't have a copyright on those phone numbers. Those phone numbers, like according to the legal law or whatever, belong to the holder of the phone number. And that's the same situation kind of that's going on here with Genius. Genius, even though its community compiles these lyrics they don't own the lyrics they don't have any copyright claim to the lyrics who who does the publishing company the, the pub- publishing yeah. companies okay and Lear and genius has a licensing agreement with those publishing companies that they they have to pay them and then thereby the artists um, get like a little cut in order to print these lyrics and google has the exact same licensing agreement with the publishing companies so google has just as much of a right to these lyric transcripts as Genius. And it's just, it's weird because yes, Genius is saying, yeah, but you didn't have to even do any work to get them. We had to put all this work together and like our community went through all of this effort to make it and then you just took it. And that is gross and slimy and does appear to be what happened. Like the watermark really proves it. But the unfortunate truth for Genius is that from a copyright perspective, it does not matter at all. Now, there's another company involved in this story as well. They're called uh, Lyric, Lyric Find. Lyric Find. Talk about that. Okay. So Lyric Find is like kind of like genius in that they are a third-party company. They're Canadian-based. Um, and they also have a licensing agreement with these publishers to transcribe lyrics. Now, the like the main problem here is that the publishers really should be the ones who have like an official database of lyrics. But they don't. They have nothing. Like, they just send the music out, and there is no official lyrics. And so then they give companies like Lyric Find or Genius or Google a license to print the lyrics, but those companies have to get the lyrics themselves somehow, either by like listening to the music or what Lyric Find says they do, is they'll go all over the internet and they'll look for sources of the lyrics. So they'll like go to Spotify and see what it says or they'll go to Wikipedia and see what it says, or they'll go to Genius and like copy and paste and then put it together and compile it. And maybe they have, they say they also have people in-house who put it together. 
Um, but basically, they Lyric Find is the company that Google pays to provide all of it. Not uh, they actually have a couple of different companies, but Lyric Find is the one we know they have, and Lyric Find is the one they pointed to for this story that Google pays for its lyrics. And so basically when this all came out, when the Wall Street Journal reported it on Sunday, Google was like, we don't do that. We didn't do that. And we are not directly putting any lyrics on Google. All of our lyrics come from this third party provider. And so you should talk to Lyric Find. So then, and then Lyric Find on Monday, the CEO is this guy named Daryl Ballantyne. And he wrote a very like aggressive statement on Monday, basically like I would say falling on his sword because Google must be one of their biggest clients or if not their biggest client. So he was like any wrongdoing on the part of Google or any implication that Google did anything wrong is completely inappropriate and wrong. They do not scrape data from Genius. They don't scrape data from anyone. They get all their lyrics from us. If there was anything like weird in the lyrics, it came from us. But what he said is that Genius had written to them years ago at the same time they contacted Google and, and said, like, you're stealing our lyrics. And so Lyric Fine said, even though we think we have every right to use you as a reference because you don't have a copyright anyways, out of like the goodness of our heart, we're going to stop and we'll just get our lyrics from somewhere else. But then they continued to be surfacing these lyrics that have the watermark. So the CEO of Lyric Find was saying, well, what may have happened is that like uh, lots of other people were stealing from Genius. And then we'd go to their site, we'd copy and paste from them, and it would still have the watermark. And honestly, like a lot of the people that I've spoken to about this who, who kind of know like the tricky nature of this copyright say, that totally makes sense. Mm. Because even like as I was reporting it, Google was the only company that Genius was calling out or that people were paying attention to. But like Microsoft Bing, has the exact same service. They have like their own version of a knowledge panel. And the songs that they were surfacing also have Genius's watermark. And and at the bottom of it, it says sourced from Lyric Find. <laughs> so the the problem of, of stealing this content seems rampant. And what's unfortunate about it is that Genius doesn't have a lot of legal ground to stand on in terms of defending these lyrics that they've sort of carefully constructed with their community and people who really care about what the, the right lyrics are. Um, that's sort of like a lost cause legally. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's certainly a bad look. Like I Terrible think they're, look. They're sort of like winning in the court of public opinion. But, yeah. um, but what's maybe more interesting that your story points out is that they, they maybe don't have a case in terms of copyright, but something much more interesting and much more in the zeitgeist, perhaps, is is the implication for antitrust. Right. So talk a little bit about what's going on there and maybe how that even fits into other antitrust issues that Google is facing right now. So Google is, you know, part of, like, the big dragnet, um, is, is caught up in the big dragnet of antitrust craziness coming out of Washington right now where they're finally saying, like, whoa, let's pay attention and see if these companies are being anti-competitive um, and they're too big and, you know, they're harming people. Um, so the way that this fits into that is that the idea is that Google is, by surfacing these lyrics, they are actually offering up a service that used to be provided by a competitor and directly undermining that competitor's ability to continue making money. And that's what Genius is saying is the most harmful thing. Like, yes, it's rude 
that the content is stolen from them. But the worst part is that because that content is then now displayed natively on Google and you don't have to click over, Genius's whole um, traffic is down. And that then undermines their ability to make money. Um, you know, they're like, they can't sell ads against their um, clicks and page views. And then, and they, and it also makes it so that someone like me, let's say, who's like, suddenly hears the song Panda and is like, what the <laughs> hell on, is that guy saying? I gotta know. <laughs> and so I Google like designer Panda lyrics and then I get it on Google. By getting it on Google, I may never have clicked over to Genius where I may have had the opportunity had I clicked over to see like, oh wow, this is a really cool robust community that offers other services beyond just lyrics and I might wanna be involved. And that's this like ad added extra service that I would never now know Genius even has. So that's the implication is that this is an example like with you know what Yelp has been saying for years with Google that by like offering its own reviews, Google reviews, like um, with its map results, that it's completely undermining Yelp's business model. Um, and it, you know, Google has been fined by the EU for this kind of practice where they were saying, you know, examples of surfacing a Google review over a Yelp review can be and could be seen as you prioritizing your own product, which is in some ways, a an inferior product like in i think it would be pretty hard to argue that google reviews are more useful than yelp reviews in most cases um so but then it's a, it's really a tricky question because if you start to say okay well surfacing these lyrics on google is now an example of google competing with genius and doing the thing that genius was doing then the question is like well do all of those knowledge boxes count as that mm. and I, I think that it's really not clear in some examples. Like the lawyer I spoke with for the piece, he was like, well, if you Google two plus two and Google tells you four, that's really what you wanted it to do, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. that's just Google working well, like the way you wanted it to work. Um, but maybe five years ago, it wouldn't have done that. It would have just put a bunch of links to calculators. And then you would have clicked on that calculator and you would have put two plus two. I mean, hopefully you didn't do that. Right, you right. were smarter than that. But I mean, it's, what's interesting is I don't doubt that Genius provides additional value beyond just lyrics. I mean, my experience with Genius and Spotify has been sometimes they offered this behind the scenes story of the musician or the making of the song or whatever it is that I find really interesting. And, and to your point, they offer to annotate other things aside from music too. So I don't doubt the value. But it sounds like what they've been doing is collating information that they they themselves do not have the right to because right. the music publishers do. And now the ways of the internet have evolved in, in, in such a short amount of time that that collating is no longer enough to sort of get them into the, like, the front spot of people con people's consciousness when they're searching for something. Exactly. Yeah, the collation is not enough. And, right. and here's the thing. I mean, if to, to get back to like copyright, if Google or Microsoft Bing or Amazon Music, who also is taking Genius's lyrics, um, if they were to also have embedded on their sites the like annotation, mm -hmm. which includes, you know, trivia and mm -hmm. like 
um, explications of the deep, dense metaphors, like that would be a whole different story because that is added, creative, different value that Genius's community is imposing on these lyrics and that like, that is not what is licensed from the publishers. That's new content. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the collated lyrics, it's just like, well, right. that's a thing. Right. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I think, I think that the antitrust issue is a really interesting one. Um, and, the, and the question is like, what's Google's lane? Yeah, what are the what are, what do you think is going to happen? Like, what are the implications? Do you think that this is actually going to end up in litigation? Is it going to blow up in some other way? I don't think that. I mean, I don't. I hesitate to speculate, but I think that because they have such a bad, they would have such a poor case on the copyright issue. I don't think that they would sue. Mm-hmm. Um, Genius told me like they're looking at all of their options. What they're hoping will happen is that Google will change its own ways by like not stealing its lyrics and not allowing Lyric Find to use it to, to like copy and paste its lyrics um, because it's just such a bad look. Mm-hmm. From an antitrust perspective, I mean, Google is, you know, a, about to be under scrutiny on so many fronts and this is just like the tiniest of one little place where it's a pain point for them. So I have no idea if anything will happen like specific to genius. I think if something happens, it'll come out of these uh, ongoing supposed investigations that are coming from the DOJ and that will look at like the much bigger issue of actually do knowledge panels and shopping offerings and airplane ticket things is that all anti-competitive mm-hmm. in which mm-hmm. case like Google would then have to make radical changes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. can I just share with you a fun tidbit that I've just learned from genius.com yes it's about the song Panda <laughs> Panda a song that I did not previously know any lyrics to is inspired by the white BMW X6. Designer notes the luxury car's resemblance to the previously endangered animal. Ooh. And now you know. Wow. Thanks, genius. Wow. <laughs> what does it say about the song Panda by Dunyan on the album Tade Lunt? What? <laughs> is this Swedish prog rock? Well, it's Swedish psych pop, really. I didn't know it. Uh, Emily, thank you for for um, <laughs> walking us through this very complex <laughs> and um, very interesting and sneaky story. So thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Are you going to join us for recommendations? Sure. All right, let's take a break, and then we'll come back and we'll do recommendations. Okay, the rule of the show is the guest goes first. Emily, what is your recommendation? Mm, My recommendation is delete Twitter from your phone. Bold. And I got to say, I did this. I deleted Twitter. I deleted Facebook. I even deleted Instagram. And then and my life was immeasurably better. And then slowly but surely I had to like cover a protest or do whatever. And I had to install these apps back onto my phone and now my life is much much worse and Mm. i am going to take my own advice and re-uninstall twitter (laughs) at least and i think everyone else should too so i took a vacation last month and i was um uh, i logged out of twitter and i removed it from like the home screen of my phone and it was great um what happened is i just spent twice as much time on instagram (laughs) yeah that makes sense interesting now emily in your in your 
ideal world, do you still have Twitter and Facebook and Instagram on your computer or have you just disengaged entirely and have begun to live in the woods near a lake? Um, so I think if I were books? not a journalist, I would just disengage entirely from Twitter, to be honest. But I felt like that would be professionally just uh, a liability. So I, when I had no Twitter on my phone for two years, I would just look at Twitter on my desktop and that worked great because it also meant that I was kind of looking during working hours and I do use it mostly for journalism. Now, um, on Facebook, on my work computer, I have never logged into Facebook because I don't want to have the possibility of looking at like my parenting groups or whatever, which would just suck me into a vortex. Um, but so I only am logged into Facebook on my desktop computer at home. I have like a dedicated Facebook computer. <laughs> I look at it for like 10 minutes a day. Um, that's actually, that's a good recommendation in and of itself. Yeah. Treat it like nuclear waste. <laughs> it should only be on one device and you should limit your exposure to radiation. That's perfect. Why, why is it that Twitter was causing you such agita? Because Twitter, I mean, this it's all cliched. We all know the answer to this. It's that Twitter is an outrage machine. And whatever, whenever I had like a free moment, be it like waiting in line for a sandwich or literally at a red light, I would look at my <laughs> phone, you know, and, and suddenly would be like plugging myself into whatever was the thing we're all enraged about at this moment. And then like also because of the way that Twitter works, I would be immediately enraged with everyone else. I'm like, yeah, I am part of this. I agree that this will not stand. What are we talking about? Prince Harry wore black socks. <laughs> yeah, like, have to like reverse engineer what the rage is even about and like go back to find the source. And oh, then that's I'm like, the worst what feeling. in the world am I doing with my life? Mm -hmm. That's the worst feeling when you look at Twitter and you obviously like mm -hmm. you're seeing something happening and you're like, oh shit, what is it? Mm -hmm. And yeah. you kind of have to tap around and then you find and you look at what's trending and then you're like, uh, what did they say? Right. Yeah. Like I can tell you right now, I'm looking at Twitter trends for myself. The, uh, the top trending topic is Roy Moore. Oh boy. Gillibrand is the second one. Uh, mm. The Suns and the NBA draft are after that. Um, Montreal, I don't know why. Yeah, it's like either any one of these you could click on and probably just be sent down a rabbit hole and like 90% yeah. of it's going to be outrage. And I actually also think that frankly it was making me a worse journalist. And I think that journalists shouldn't be so plugged into Twitter because by having it on my phone and being aware of whatever the thing was that we were the most outraged about in that moment, um, it made me have this sense that like, whatever the thing is that we're talking about on Twitter that we're also upset about is the thing I should be writing about and investigating. Yeah. And like, that's <laughs> bullshit. Because actually, if in, in that case, everyone's already on it. Like there's gonna be 400 think pieces. I don't need to be the other 401st think piece on it. And it, you know, in some, some cases in my reporting it was actually quite helpful because it was like, oh, the Arab Spring is happening, <laughs> you know, like let's be tuned in. But in other cases, it was totally a distraction and I think it's harmful for the news and actually we should be using our own judgment and following our news senses where it belongs and like where, where we smell that there is something going on and not where the Twitter horde is telling us to look. Solid advice, dump Twitter. Excellent recommendation. Ariel, what's yours? Uh, my recommendation this week is a podcast. So um, let's say you're listening to a great song that you maybe just looked up the lyrics for on Genius and you like now understand what the person is saying, but you're trying to understand like what are they really saying? 
Um, <laughs> may I recommend the podcast Top 40 Philosophy, which takes music from popular artists and then applies a philosophical lens to analyze them. Um, and the podcast is hosted by a guy with a PhD in philosophy. He's a former professor. Um, he's also like a total nerd, but gives this like really engaging fascinating and instructive take on what you're listening to on the radio so like the last episode is about this chance the rapper song called angels and he uses this as a jumping off point to talk about epistemology how do we know what we know and how different philosophers approach that over time and how do those philosophies apply to chance the rapper it's weird it's fun it will give you a lot of things to talk about at parties um, and uh, it, it will also include a lot of good music along the way. That's great. What's been your favorite? What's your, been your favorite breakdown so far? I, I actually think that last episode is the best one. It goes in a lot of weird directions that I wasn't expecting. Like he also talks about the origin of the term meme, which mm. I think is a great thing to be reminded of. It's actually like a term from Richard Dawkins who compares meme, a package of information, to a gene, a package of DNA. Um, and talks about how these things are disseminated and how they're important to study because if they start appearing in great frequency, you can look at the environment and say, like, why is this being expressed uh, more often here versus somewhere else? Anyway, wow. it's it gets it gets weird. It gets wonky. You'll feel like you're in a lecture, but you're also a little stoned. It's tight. <laughs> Sweet. Mike, what's yours? Oh, my recommendation this week is a brand new 15-year-old video game. Uh, it's called Katamari Damacy Reroll. So Katamari Damacy came out in 2004. Uh, it was a PlayStation 2 game. Um, I played it incessantly. Now, I should say that like I'm not necessarily a video games person, but I have uh, moment, I've, like periods of my life where I played a lot of video games, like when I was really young, you know, like before I was 13, I played video games every day. And then, you know, I got into going outside. Um, and then when I was in college, I was indoors a lot and I was playing video games again. And then, you know, I got into going outside again. Anyway, Katamari Damacy is one of those things where like somebody said, try this video game, you'll love it. And I said, yeah, whatever. And I played it. And then I just played it nonstop for like six months and then put it down. Now that the Nintendo Switch is out, the game is out for Nintendo Switch. And I bought it and put it on my Switch. And again, I am glued to the thing and I cannot stop playing it. The game is, um, it's called, the original is called Katamari Damacy and it's about, uh, you're the son of the king of the universe and he accidentally loses all the stars. He like gets drunk and passes out and he wakes up and the stars are gone. So you have to help him put all the stars back in the sky. And how you do this is he sends you down to earth and you have a little ball and you roll the ball around and you pick up objects. And you pick up, like you start picking up little things like matches, batteries, postage stamps. And then you pick up things that are slightly bigger like pencil erasers, onigiri, mice. It's a Japanese game. It's aggressively Japanese actually. It's like really like cute and fun. Uh, and it's just totally addictive. You just basically roll around like a little dung beetle and roll the ball bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to make bigger and bigger stars until all the stars in the sky are full. That's the game. So the stars in the sky in this scenario are made out of small objects from Earth. That you collect. 
Yes. Gotcha. That you roll this ball around and they stick to the ball and then they put the ball in the sky. Cool. And then you go on to the next one. Is that not what they're made out of in real life? <laughs> Is that not the point of life? So the game um, has been remastered, basically, for, for high def. So, like, you know, it was a standard definition game because it came out in the SD era. So now it's been remastered for this new console experience. Um, I purchased it a couple of weeks ago. It was on sale. It's normally $30. It was on sale for, I think, $21. And I think in the Nintendo eShop, it's still on sale right now. So I think you can still get it at a discount. Um, but even if you can't, it's worth the 30 bucks. It's super fun. It's like the games last about five minutes each. So it's really easy to pick up and put down whenever you have a spare moment, maybe at a red light, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> She's in the market for a Twitter replacement. So. <laughs> yeah. Also the theme, like everything about it, the game design, the theme music, just like the humor in it is really funny. The theme, theme music is totally addictive and you can actually like, the soundtrack, you know, video game soundtracks, this big sort of subgenre. The soundtrack is just awesome because it's like it's like jazzy and fun and kind of funky. Do a little funky. bit for us. Oh, the theme song. Yeah. Oh, it's like it, it's like and yes. It's actually like it, somebody singing it like that. That's, that's just, just not just me like da da daing the melody. It's actually somebody singing it. Oh my god! Really? And different people sing it. Oh my so. god! Is there a genius for this? I don't know. That would be so anyway, <laughs> that's my recommendation. Katamari Damacy Reroll, which is the remastered version of the classic Katamari Damacy on the Switch. And that's Katamari with a K. If you just start typing Katamari Damacy Switch, you'll find it, I'm sure. That's solid, so great. Solid recommendation. What's yours? That makes me want Nigiri right now. Yeah. <laughs> I just said Nigiri, and I'm like, ooh, my mind went there. I've been distracted ever since. <laughs> my first recommendation, which is a surprise recommendation, is if you are looking for something fun uh, that Genius is annotated, I recommend um, listening to Skilo's I Wish and watching the Genius annotation of it. Like, listen, I don't know if you call it reading or watching because it sort of like goes through slides. Experiencing. But it's like, it tells the backstory of Skilo and this one hit, you know, he's kind of a one hit wonder with this song I Wish and it's really interesting. So, oh my God, um, I love that Peter, song Peter, so much. It's really, it's really, the, their notes on it are really good and Peter Rubin and I have discussed this before and like, you should just totally <laughs> go listen to it. But my real recommendation this week is, um, Handmaid's Tale season three is out on Hulu. Well, and, that took a turn. Yeah. <laughs> So we're getting dark right now. And uh, it's episode five, they just published this Wednesday, or just published, I don't know what you call it, released, I don't know, internet mm -hmm. platforms. It is on the internet streaming now, <laughs> episode five. So Hulu releases these once per week, so you can't just binge watch. And that's probably a good thing because, you know, yeah. you might feel really bad after binge watching Handmaid's Tale. I will say that season three is so far not my favorite. But I'm invested. I've watched season one and two. I thought one and two were excellent. The thing is, is that Margaret, Margaret Atwood's um, original novel, The Handmaid's Tale, ended at a certain point at which you did not know what the fate of Alfred would ultimately be. And then because the show extended beyond that point, um, now the writing is just, it's all native to the show. And it goes in a bunch of different directions. And I'm not quite sure I'm loving it. And sometimes I feel like Throughout each episode, there are like overly dramatized looks and scenes and things that I'm not quite sure I follow so far this season. But that said, I am into it. I do recommend Handmaid's Tale. And I always recommend reading the book first. And so I do recommend reading The Handmaid's Tale if you haven't. So, Lauren, is the is season three kind of overtly about the Trump administration? That's the, I haven't been watching. I stopped after season one, which was when the book ended. But I've heard that, that it's veered so closely to like commentary about the current era. 
Do you find that to be true? I felt that way about season two. Okay. Certainly. Um, there were a lot of parallels there with season two. And now I think that season three, I'm just a little confused by it, honestly, because in the first season, I remember that with in the world of Gilead, there was just constantly the threat of death for mm-hmm. the handmaids. You know, they were constantly being brought by the wall or you as the viewer were seeing the wall where people were hung and and like the handmaids were afraid to look at each other and it seems as though this world has opened up a little bit where now they do kind of whisper to each other in the grocery store and as they're walking down the streets and they're not afraid they're going to immediately meet their demise and so far we haven't seen like I don't think there's been a single scene in season three where they've shown the wall or someone Hmm. being executed Hmm. so it seems like those threats are less imminent and the season three really dives deeply into the emotional um, sort of terror that Offred and her family are going through because she's separated from one child and she ends up being separated from another. And um, there's not too much of a spoiler alert, but you kind of had to see it coming when she had the second baby that like the Waterfords were not going to let her get in some way, right? <laughs> yeah. So so like yeah, it's more. Um, but because of because it's more focused on, I think. Just and there are a lot of like flashbacks to her life in, in Boston beforehand, and then there are some cutaways to what's going on with her husband in Canada. Um, so they're really like teasing this this sort of yeah, I guess emotional terror is is the better way to describe it. Um, hmm. It's not so explicit as like children in cages like it was mm. last season. Gotcha. My favorite subplot in this season is the um, how they're organizing the underground resistance on Twitter. Wait, they're doing it on Twitter. <laughs> see the access to Twitter. I must have missed that whole thing. There is there is a resistance that's being that's being organized. And the in the character of Serena is probably the most interesting character this season. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, Emily, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me guys. Always fun. Yeah, it's always great to so have great you here have you. and hopefully we'll have you back soon. Um uh, tell people how they can find you or not find you on Twitter. You can find me at Emily Dreyfus and if I'm tweeting in the middle of the day, that's good. If you see me tweeting at night, <laughs> I have broken my own rule. And that's D-R-E-Y-F-U-S-S? Yeah, D-R-E-Y-F as in Frank, U-S-S as in Sam, to say it the way that everyone in my family has said it my whole life. <laughs> um, Lauren, how do people find you on the Twitter? I'm at Lauren Good with an E at the end. Ariel? I'm at Pardesoteric. I am at SnackFight, and you can talk to all of us at Gadget Lab, which is the Twitter feed for the show and for all the coverage that we do on Wired. So if you follow that, then you get to read all the stories that we do, and you can send us feedback. Also, like Lauren mentioned at the beginning of the show, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a good review on iTunes for as long as it's around... <laughs> I guess that's probably the best place to review. Or you yeah. can leave a review on like Google Play. I think, Apple I don't know. Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. Yeah. yeah. Any place where you can write nice things about us or give us criticism, we can take it. We're journalists. We're into it. Um, thanks to Boone for engineering the show again this week. And we will be back next week with another show. Bye.